Hey, Doug. Hey, Karen. We are Happy almost Valentine's Day, by the way. Oh, bah humbug. Yeah, there we go. There we go. I knew I could count on you. (laughs) We're on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, We are talking about shit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some good shit. Um, Yeah, doing a little uh, media culture um, survey. And I think this one's mostly on me. I think it's uh, stuff that I've seen since our last pod. Um, Yeah, I've done nothing but stare at the ceiling for the past week. (laughs) Therapy comes in many forms. Um, So I wanted to talk first about a show that has one episode left. So probably mere days or hours by the time people will listen to this, uh, the finale will air. And it's a limited series airing on Showtime called Your Honor with Brian Cranston. Have you heard of it? No, not even, which I'm a little surprised about because Brian Cranston yeah, it, it is a, a big deal. Uh, yeah, and um, he it is based, like so many are, on an Israeli series. Uh, he plays a, a very, like, above-board judge in New Orleans whose wife died. It sounds... We don't have a lot of details, but it, it, it seems like in a very horrible tragedy where she was a victim of gun violence uh, in a not great neighborhood in the Lower Ninth. Um, and that's about a year before the action of the show begins. He has a teenage son who is driving one morning and has an asthma attack and is not paying attention at the wheel while he tries to retrieve his inhaler. And ends up driving into another character, another teenager, on a motorcycle. And kills him. And that, character's, that character, that dead kid, happens to be the son of a big, like, New Orleans-made man. Ooh. Played by the one, the only, the great, Doug and Alyssa favorite, Michael Stuhlbarg. Ah. So... What unfolds is a very tangled web involving the upstanding judge played by Brian Cranston, knowing that it's not enough for his son to step forward and say that he was the guilty party because what I didn't say was the son never called 911 and or the, the son didn't, didn't wait for the cops and it was a hit and run. Um, so no one knows who the culprit is. Um, but Brian Cranston knows if the Michael Stuhlbar character finds out the kid is as good as dead. Mm. His son is as good as dead. So it's the machinations that um, Brian Cranston's character creates to save and protect his son. And it becomes a tangled web because it involves a lot of people, a lot of colleagues of his and the, the law and police force that he starts calling on for favors. Um, the son makes a series of stupid decisions that complicate things as well. Um, but we watched nine episodes over the course of one weekend as we await the finale, and we actually found it to be uh, a really fun, really rewarding, and quite well-acted uh, um, miniseries. I wasn't sure at the time if it was going to be, uh, if like if it had the potential to come back, that it wasn't limited. It seems to be a one-and-done, one-season thing. So I can't, I can't render my final verdict, um, but I'm very happy with it so far. Oh, I mean, I didn't really hear. I knew, I think I knew kind of Michael Stuhlberg was in something that was like, I just, there's just something that hasn't been on my radar, but it sounds really good. Yeah, better than we thought. Although 
you know, the thing that you're saying about you didn't really hear anything about it, I feel like that is true of all of the Showtime shows. I feel like they just stay in some limbo where they don't get nearly the same hype as any of their, any, certainly not the streamings, but any of the competing networks. Yeah. Like even Outlander on Stars gets more ink than I think anything on Showtime does since at least the beginning of Homeland. Well, yeah, that's because there was like oral sex scenes in Outlander and the well, press. Yeah, I mean, it like, was the pure. You know, titters yeah. like, you know, they, they titter like they're 12 year old fucking kids. Yeah, when, that's whenever uh, that is a 100% truism. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> again, like I've said before, this is where we are. This is how <laughs> we are. It's a, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's true. I, I mean, you know, anything. Anytime anything remotely kinky enters pop culture, like our mainstream media just like they just lose their mind. They lose their ever loving minds. I mean, it is like you, I, you know, and I don't and, even know why. Like, is it? It's not. Even and the like, thing is, it's it's not like it's never been done before. Yes. Every time, it's like the first time. It's like there's nothing that has like everything is now the line in the sand has been so far back it's a dock. Like, yeah. there's nothing left to titillate. It's uh, all been seen and done before. It's all easily findable already. I mean, you know, I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it out loud on this podcast, <laughs> but I've said it to you, I think, a number of times. Dealing with the entertainment press, and I'm, I'm going to qualify this entertainment press because I don't want to think that I'm like, you know, bitching about the media, like, because there are journalists that are doing really important things with really important stories. Um, entertainment journalism ain't that. Um, and, the, you know, it's honestly, it's like being in friggin' high school all over again. <laughs> it really is. No, it really is. I mean, it is like, you know, the, the stupidest girl, things the, really get people going. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous. The gossip, the rumor. You know that they like to spread the god. They, you know, that's not the, that's not true, um, which we actually will dig into during this podcast a little bit more. Um, that's right. Tease, tease. Could be an interesting segue, but you know, it just is sort of like mind blowing to think about like what gets them going, and it's usually some sort of not even like kink. It's like maybe like not quite vanilla sex, and they're all like, "What?" They all go bananas. Yeah, or like, it's like just a celebrity does a little bit of nudity. And it's like, you've really never seen this before? Who uh, cares? Yeah, do you remember when Nicole Kidman did... Um, in the Blue Room? Yeah. Jesus Yeah, I, and I didn't see it because I wasn't in New York. But back in Virginia, as a college student, like I was still able to hear all about how people lost their mind. Yeah. It was all they were covering. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it was... Because it was all I heard. It was absolutely ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. It was like... And I don't even think you could see anything. Like, she was in silhouette or something. I don't... Like, I really don't remember. But it was like... And it's, you know... And it's always whenever, like, an actor sort of strips down on stage, there's always, like, this, like, oh, teehee, I could see his balls. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, you know, honestly... Yeah. I, and, I, and I feel like... I do feel like sometimes that shit is put into... Particularly stage plays on purpose. Because... 100%. Because absolutely. When you see it in the moment... The actors are so uncomfortable. Yeah. And it is so clear that the actors are so uncomfortable. 
Like um, when I saw Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune with um, Edie Falco and Stanley Tucci, Tucci. Yeah. yeah, who were wonderful. And that is one of my favorite plays. Agreed. Um, don't care what anyone else says. Agreed. Agreed. And and turn into I don't care what anybody else says. A wonderful movie with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, you'll and never I'll... get an argument from me. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> we will revisit that friends. later this year. Anyway, this is why we're friends. Um, <laughs> they both of them, you know. And I guess I guess it's written into the script. I I don't. I'm it, not... It's deliberate. Yeah, yeah. It is del- from the start. Both of them looked. Like deer in headlights, and these are two of our finest stage actors, really. I mean, they're both wonderful actors. Um, but I knew, I knew because I had read an, a, a, an article from Edie Falco, who is not your typical ingenue. I think she's beautiful, but like at the time, I think she was just coming off of Oz, where she played the prison guard. And she, she I think she'd already been Carmela for a couple of years on The Sopranos. She had been Carmela, okay, but I remember she when but, she. Came, Oz, but she, not necessarily conventional. Yeah. Yeah, she was not like that slim, skinny, you know. Um, and I and I remember her saying that she like actually worked really hard to lose weight, so because she knew she was going to do this nude scene, and and you could see and you could just tell when she stripped down, it was very uncomfortable. And and I feel that way. And th- and it's not. It wasn't just them. I feel that way anytime an actor is like you know has to change their clothes on stage and is not like wearing underwear and like they're just completely exposed. They look like they all look like deer in headlights. And I always yeah. wonder what the hell. I mean, the show it? Take Me Out swept all the the awards and won the best play Tony um, because it had either three or four full cast shower scenes on stage and like. That's the only reason why that show became the talk of the season was because everyone knew they could show up to see a dozen guys' dongs on stage. Because it's not really a smart show. <laughs> I love that you said dongs. <laughs> Can I say, oh I'm a God. word guy. I pick my words carefully. <laughs> oh, God, hold on a minute. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I've broken Karen. Oh, shit i don't think i've heard that word in like 20 years it's a fun fucking word it is a fun i'll have word. to use it more i need to start using it more often. <laughs> so yeah i mean i don't know i kind of feel like have you never seen a dick before that's how i feel yeah you know i mean come on i, I don't know these people are like i don't know this is this is just i i could just bitch forever <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I mean, yeah, I know you've uh, you've de- you've had to deal with that a lot over the course of your career. But you know, so so I I think there's something to be said for that because I'm a little bit surprised too that this is like Brian Cranston. He's kind of a big deal. Nobody cares. Yeah, <laughs> because it's on Showtime. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, did it get lost? in like this spate of other programming. I mean, I just have to say it's, you know, kind of on Showtime because could you name five shows that are on Showtime all year? Probably not. But the other thing is too, it's not like anything really great has come out recently. No, I mean, and I hate being that guy, but it has been a very infertile year. COVID aside, because most of these things were in the can or close to being in the can and ultimately, released aired premiered whatever um it 
it, there has been a lot of content, but not a lot of it has, has been exciting. Yeah, like, I, I kind of feel like everything I watch is like, eh. Like the Wink saga, which I know we talked about that I said mm-hmm. I like. Yeah. And I did like it. But I wasn't, like, over the moon. Like, I, it wasn't like when I watched su- Succession and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Or, you know, The Boys. When I was boys, I was like, holy shit, this is really clever and unusual and there's nothing out there like it and it's really well done. You know, there, there hasn't, you know, I mean, Winx was good for what it was, but it felt derivative of sort of like everything else. Yeah. You know, every other yeah, sort I of, that. you know, every other sort of teen, young adult set in a prep school, a British prep school right. Right. magic right. thing, you know, um, it's, so it just, it just felt really derivative. And so... So I'm a little bit surprised because, yeah, there hasn't been anything in a while that's really sort of caught and really made you say, oh, I can't stop watching that. Yeah, I yeah. You know, we're selective about what we watch and we balance it out with a lot of older classic things and then, you know, reality TV and food stuff still. Um, because if we were only watching the current crop, we'd just be like, is that all there is? Yeah. I mean, we say that one at a time anyway. And I try and be gentle as I analyze them on our weekly podcast here. Um, but cumulatively, like, it is a, you know, it's an unimpressive bunch of things that had high potential and really never even tried to come close to reaching. Yeah. So let's go back to our segue. <laughs> I also saw... Something that you might be interested in. Um, Part of a series of New York Times documentaries available on Hulu. uh, This one called Framing Britney Spears. And it's about Britney Spears. Which is one I do want to see, um, but I haven't had a chance to yet. But I'm happy to talk about it. Because I did read an article about what it was about um, that I thought made some very good points. And again... When all of this was sort of happening, um, I guess it. Well, you talk about it. Wh- how, what it yeah, is? Yeah. Well, let me let me talk about the things that I'm not sure it does great, and then I'll talk about I think what it does do right, and and that's probably where you can chime in, even if you haven't seen it. Um, the show, the documentary is primarily focusing on where Britney is now, like figuratively and geographically, where for upwards of a decade, her father has been her custodian. Right. Um, Because, you know, we as people around the world sort of watched her unfold in the late aughts. And um, so she went under her father's care. And now there are a bunch of people who are saying she is trying to secretly send messages that she wants out and that her father is taking advantage of this custodianship and they're you know they're protesting even in covid when you're either supposed to stay the fuck home or if you are protesting it's things like black lives matter there are assholes out there that are protesting that britney needs to be free it's kind of appalling um and the the documentary which is the New York Times promoting itself. Like, it has some of its writers, um, like its pop reporter and its culture writer, among other people, um, sort of doing a, a, a two-cent um, consensus of, of Britney's life in the spotlight, which there was a lot happening in a very quick amount of time, as someone who was alive during it, I can say. So they kind of... Uh, 
I think they kind of make some felonious uh, or, or, or erroneous, I would say, um, comparisons and miss uh, some of the other things that are also equally important about happening uh, at the time. And it, it goes quickly through her career and then through, you know, her marriage, her divorce, the two kids, when she started melting down, when she acted violently against some of the paparazzi leading up to, you know, the going under her father's care. Um, and I mean, the, it's a slim documentary. It's not quite 90 minutes and only about 30, 35 of it is devoted to anything involving her dad and, and where she has been and things that she has posted on social media recently. Mm -hmm. The, the, the truth is no one knows that my completely uninformed take on Britney Spears is like Whitney Houston. She had a lot of success early on. People pushed her into it more than she pushed herself. Right. And she didn't really care or necessarily have a passion for it, for singing, for performing, for, for any of the storm that she found herself the center in. And when, once she was gone, like she didn't really care. There's no spirit in her. Even when they show her, when she did her Vegas residency, she's not getting anything out of these live performances. They are building a show of pyrotechnics and people performing around her, and she just sort of shows up. People are there to experience the Britney environment more than they are to like see her sing her guts out. Um, and I just don't think she cares. I don't think she misses the spotlight. I don't think she misses performing. I think it's people with nothing else to do, God knows how, um, who, who just want her to return because she represents something to them. I don't think there's actually something foul afoot yeah. here. And I don't think the documentary does anything to prove otherwise. I also think they were not able to get time with anyone connected to anything with her current situation. They reached out to every family member and got no response. They reached out to other people that were part of her, you know, like business team and they declined. They interview a woman who is probably about 20, 25 years, Britney's elder, who was a family friend and was her assistant at the height of Britney's career, who is no longer a part of, of like her advising team. And that woman, you know, offered some commentary, but her story's very weird too, because she says she was living in New York and her mom came with Britney to New York shortly before she signed with Jive Records. And the mom said, I can't travel with Britney, but I need someone to take care of Britney as like she is starting her career and meeting with people and stuff like that. And this woman said, I just quit my job yesterday. I'm free. I can do this. There's something weird about that story. There's something we're not being told about that arrangement in the first place that gives me pause. Yeah. But my thing is, this is like a, this is like a thesis essay without like citing any real sources. Right. It's a very wobbly sort of documentary. Having huh. said all that, the show raises, as you may have seen in that article you read or across any kind of social media, a lot of uh, revisiting of the sexualizing of Britney and the media scrutiny and treatment of Britney as a woman, as a child and teenager, uh, as a human who wasn't treated as such, um, it has sort of reopened the door of, of looking back on that. And I think that may be part of what you were talking about and what you had mm -hmm. read about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it sort of moved beyond the sort of sexualization of her. I mean, I think that 
uh, I think that that's just something that seems to well, honestly, I think with Britney, she was kind of the pioneer with that, where she was coming out of the Disney world, mm-hmm. right? That's where she started, um, was Seriously, with Disney. Yeah, yeah. And and so in order to break out of that, she kind of had to pull a, you know, she she was the original, original Miley Cyrus of breaking free of the, um, the Disney image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by, I, I guess... Maybe that first video, I, I think, was the one with her in the schoolgirl outfit in yeah, the high school. Yeah, hit me, baby, one more time. Yeah, hit me, baby, one more time. Thank you. Um, I think that was sort of like her big coming out um, as no longer a Disney child star, but an adult-ish. I don't even know how she, how old she was then. Um, like 17? She was still pretty young, you know, pop idol. Um yeah, and a lot of I, the article that I read, and I wish I could remember where I read it because it was actually pretty good. I feel like maybe it was like Mary Claire or something like that. Mm. Um, anyway, she, it it was about really the misogyny. It really took aim at the media and the media's misogyny and how you know, particularly with the Justin Timberlake. She and Justin Timberlake were a thing for a very long time, mm-hmm. and you know, the breakup after the breakup, they really scrutinized. Um, Britney's role in the breakup and left kind of left Justin out of it and, and his career thrived as a result yeah his career thrived and her and and she just sort of like continued to spiral yeah. um and it was probably I mean I don't want to say all because of but I think that you know the media scrutiny that she was under probably had a lot to do with her meltdown um you know I don't know that anybody can endure that type of, especially back then. I mean, I think this was even before they had this, the anti-stalking laws uh, in Los Angeles for the paparazzi chasing down mm-hmm. celebrity. I mean, I don't think that that particular time was just insane. The money that the paps were getting for exclusive photos was obscene. And it created this frenzy amongst the photographers to get the shot. And they would do outrageous things. Um, to, desperate to get, things. Yeah. Desperate things to get these photos. Um, I don't know if I ever told you about the pap that I was friendly with who ended up um, in, in the limo with Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Uh uh-uh, uh no. Yeah, because it was he she he was he he had a bicycle. Like this was like a thi- like like it was a very big deal that he got a bicycle. He was in he was in New York City pap and he had a bicycle and nobody else was, so he could get places really fast. <laughs> he could chase cars, he could chase after Yeah, because cars. if you have a car in New York, like forget it. Yeah, but he could chase them, you know. So um so he actually he was on the bicycle and the limo hit him. And- <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like the limo hit him or, or no or maybe he was like biking so hard to keep up that like Angelina like opened the door and was like why don't you come in and ride with me and she <laughs> and she would have her bodyguard like call this guy and tip him off like where she was going to be and that sort of thing because like he, he became the person that she would call when she wanted shots like when she wanted well you know, which again ties into the thing that like if you really want to avoid all media there are ways but often people are making those calls right but at that at that time i mean it really was 
a frenzy and Brittany was sort of like the t- like she was like chum in the water yeah you know she like they just went after her and um and it was a free-for-all it was absolutely mental it was absolutely mental yeah for a very long period yeah um i mean so- it, like she really and she's not alone in this clearly but um really was picked at as a commodity and not a person yeah. Yeah, which is sort of hard to think about because this was, you know, pre-Instagram, pre-cell phones with really good cameras, pre, you know, you still needed a camera, you know, you still needed a decent camera, you know, um, and and so a lot of times these celebrities, you know, for as much as they could control their image or they tried to control their images, um, they, the images were a bit out of their control. Um, you know, not like now where they can just carefully, carefully curate their images on social media and there isn't as much of a market for these photos. I mean, I know the photos are still out there, you know, people magazine still has, you know, stars, they're just like us, you know, I mean, there's still a market for it, but it wasn't like it used to be. No, I mean, I think, I think things like Instagram and other social media tools, have kind of diminished that. And this was also like, I mean, I, the, I'd completely forgotten about this and the, the article brought this back up too. This was the, this was the reign of Perez Hilton. And yeah, yeah. this was, like, there's, yeah, yeah. He gets a mention in this. Where like, you know, he was, you know, he was really nasty. And he, invasive, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was really nasty. I mean, he would like do like that, what was it, Microsoft art on like, on the pap, shots of celebrities that like with really cruel and obnoxious things yeah i mean to this day i'm pretty sure i'm not a fan yeah and i know that he's said he he disavowed that some time ago i don't know what he, he had said. a memoir in which i think he kind of apologized or maybe half-assedly apologized for some of what he said and did right i mean i i kind of like look at that time as sort of you know, that was our precursor to Donald Trump, frankly. Um, I, I do feel like that that's when, you know, our, our culture kind of started spiraling down the toilet, frankly. Sure, sure. You know, because that, you know, that that behavior, that type of bad behavior was ultimately rewarded um, and quite handsomely financially. Very much so. Very much so. So, yeah, I don't know. There was a point there, but it was just basically how, you know, she was basically abused by the press and they made a lot of money off of her. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Everyone did. (laughs) A lot of money off of her. And, um, you know, and, and she was not the better for it. No, no. A lot of people benefited off of her. Yeah. Well, I'm curious if you see this. Uh, we can talk about it more next week, you, in case you have yeah, any other Yeah, I too. I just was insight. kind of like, I, I, now I'm a little bit less inclined for some reason because I feel like... <laughs> because of what I said? Because Yeah, because of what you said, because I'm kind of like, uh, you know, like it was a New York Times documentary, which I actually didn't realize that. And then I was kind of like, oh, well, that means it's probably going to be really good. And then to hear like they didn't get anybody like from her team to like talk about it except for like this one woman who seems kind of suspect anyway like like the new york times put their stamp on that yeah well i think there's a lot we can say about them too 
that seems a little like surprising to me and I'm kind of like, well then, you know, I guess what are, you know, maybe I like the article that I read was like all I needed to know about it that might've been remotely interesting to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, Like now I'm feeling a little bit like they really did a disservice, you know, and, and they, and, and once again, they're doing the same thing that it sounds like they're being a little bit critical of. They're making money off of this woman who is clearly unwell, (laughs) you know, who, who is, who is, who is unwell, who's really gone through, who's really gone through it. And is trying to put her life back together. There are some valid points. There are many half-assed points that are dug into here, but it's a sensationalistic documentary that is really used to puff themselves up, I think. Right. Which is, you know, but it also and it also gives credence to all these like free Britney movement people, where it's like there's nothing else productive you could do with your time. Well, I mean, not you're risking I'm... your life for someone you've never met who may or may not like exactly where she is, and you're insisting that there's a case here. Again, I can't say for sure that they're wrong. I don't know any more than they don't know, um, but this doesn't seem like you know inefficient use of anyone's time. Right. And this, whatever's going on with her and her dad is really between her and her dad. Like, it's really between her and her family, you know. Um, And if she is a mentally ill woman, um, you know, she does need somebody to look after her. I'm sorry. Like, that just is that. That's just it. And I say that as somebody who had a parent that was mentally ill. And I know that my parent needed, you know, my mom needed somebody to kind of look after her. Yeah, she may be completely comfortable with the current arrangement. And it's just a bunch of bozos who are like, well, we want to see more Britney Spears. Well, this is the thing, too. Like, what is their, like, do they feel like she's not performing? Like, she'd go on tour? Like, she's yeah, not being allowed think, to perform? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So their motivation is also suspect. This isn't about the health of this, of the person that they claim to love. It's more about they want to see her do another tour, cut another album. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what they want. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what anyone wants. I don't understand anyone. I don't, <laughs> I don't either, but I am um, Team Brittany. Yeah, no matter what, I root for her. I'm I, Team Brittany. I want her to be happy and to live a long life. Yeah, I want her to be happy and to thrive. Like, that's, you know, and for her kids, too. Most of all, yes. So, yeah. Uh, Let's talk about something that I don't feel as warm about. (laughs) Okay. That's a a new movie to Netflix called Malcolm and Marie, starring John David Washington, son of Denzel, and Zendaya, which is, I think, the correct way to say it. I've heard that that movie is really tough to watch. Yeah, because it's bad. <laughs> it that is, that, that is not what I've heard, movie. but tell me more. <laughs> um, I mean, let me just give you the basic setup. In a, it's, it's written and directed by Sam Levinson, son of Oscar-winning director Barry Levinson. Okay. Um, who also co-created the show Euphoria that Zendaya is on, which I haven't seen. Um, It is about a couple. Uh, He is a cocky filmmaker, um, and she is his girlfriend, and they come home after a premiere party, and 
it's it's a two-hander. It's just the two of them, you know, like as the night unfolds, um, you know, like unloading a lot of pent up frustration and venom uh, at each other. Um, it is uh, very in a, a distractingly shot all in black and white. It looks either like a David Fincher MTV music video from 30 years ago or mm -hmm. like a, a film student project. Like it, it calls so much attention to itself without yielding a thing. Um, like it is so smug and then the script itself is, is like so arrogant. Um, you know, they, they, Sam Levinson through the John David Washington character of Malcolm, the director, you know, names drop, name drops, um, Hollywood people, you know, he, it isn't enough that he has to name drop an old time director like William Wyler, uh, as someone to whom he aspires to be, but then he actually doesn't trust the audience enough to know who William Wyler is, which is a three time Oscar winning best director from the 1940s and fifties and sixties. Um, it, it is so like just distractingly full of itself. Um, and it's own like circular conversation garbage, you know, lots of close-ups uh, at the beginning of um, Marie making macaroni and cheese. Again, all done in glorious black and white. Um, I think the highlight for me is when mid-fight, she just disappears and walks out of the L.A. rental they've been put in um, to go and relieve herself outside by a tree. And she comes back in and says she had to go out to pee. Uh, and he was looking for her. He couldn't find her. And she goes, and he's like, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, I'm not like you. I didn't grow up with a backyard, so it's novel to me. And it's like, this isn't cute. This isn't really character uh, specific. It's, it, it, it's a very desperate, low-hanging fruit sort of script with a very, very just getting in its own way sensibility. Um, that really doesn't lead to anything. And the other thing that I'm very sad to say is that both actors are uh, truly terrible. Like, it's the kind of thing where you want to say, this is a bad movie with a bad script. Someone else should have also been directing it. Um, that's the problem. The script does the actors no favors. The actors also do nothing possible to elevate it. Uh, everyone, everyone is bad here. Everyone suffers. Most of all, the audience. It's a, it's a bad movie. Um, well, I had heard that it was, um, in particular, very disturbing to watch because there are scenes of abuse in it. Um, yes, again, like there's some degree of, of ambiguity. It's as the tempers flare, but yeah, I, yeah, I get that. Okay, yeah, like a, like they were talking about particularly in the bathtub scene, I think it was they were talking about. Mm -hmm. There was a bathtub mm -hmm. scene that was um that was absolutely they said it, I, I had read like impo like practically impossible to watch um because it was so it, it there, because it was so abusive. Yeah, I think yeah, I think every I think they're all I think the script leaves them out to sea, um, and yeah, I don't know if I think. I don't know if I'd say irresponsible, but I do think it was, it just felt, the whole thing just felt inauthentic. So I don't know that I was bothered. I certainly wasn't triggered by anything. Um, it, it just felt, I guess, exploitative. It's, but like yeah. in the, you know, like in the service of really nothing. It doesn't huh. make the film any weightier or any better. It just seemed cheap. Okay.
but I'm also not the type of person who needs a trigger warning. Um, I mean, I didn't think it was. I didn't. I didn't think it was cringy because because it was difficult. I thought it was cringy because it was ridiculous and bad. Mm. Okay. I th- I'm not gonna see that. <laughs> yeah. No. I no. I know. Yeah. They really did try and are, are trying to do a big uh, award season push for it, and for t- particularly for her. And I, I mean, this in no way rises. Well, Zendaya is kind of like the it girl at she the moment. She is an it girl at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I know that euphoria seems to be something that is, you know, people are just sort of like going crazy over her mm-hmm. because of her in particular. Um, so I, 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 she's a music artist too, correct? Yeah. Yeah. She's also, you know, started, I think on Disney. Yeah, she did. Um, but yeah, she sings and, um, was in the greatest showman. Yeah. So she's a performer. I mean, look. She's not, she's never impressed me. I don't think I've ever believed anything that I've seen her say as any character. Sometimes I can't even hear all of the words she's trying to say. Um, so, I've yeah, but she's never, an, I don't think I've ever seen her in anything. No, I mean, I don't think she's done a ton, but you wouldn't have seen any of it anyway. You know, she's in one of the recent Spider-Man reboot, reboot, reboots. Um, or two of them, I guess. And Greatest Showman and Euphoria... Have you and seen? And I don't know Euphoria? that I've seen anything else. No, I haven't. Yeah, that just did not appeal to me at all. But I guess I'm not its target. Yeah, it's one of those. It didn't. It didn't reach out to me, and I hadn't heard from anyone that I typically trust that it is something that's doing something good, as opposed to something that excites a certain kind of audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know I haven't watched it. Okay. Interesting. Um, anything else? Well, just real quickly, I also wanted to talk about a movie that's having a 25th anniversary today, uh, which is uh, an indie that I loved in the 90s called Beautiful Girls with Matt Dillon and Natalie Portman mm-hmm. and Timothy Hutton among a whole, like, cast we've, of, of greats. We've talked about this before. It is one of my favorite movies. So it was released 25 years ago today, February 9th, 1996. Really? So I just wanted to give it a shout out because I think it's a really underheralded gem um, that everyone is really good. And back when indie films were like really independent and had all each their own aesthetic, um, like everyone in this movie is is just so good. And it really kind of cemented Natalie Portman as as a young thing of notes between that and the professional the year before. I don't think she would have had the career she's gone on to have without these two movies. I think it's Matt Dillon at his warmest and most charismatic and uh, Mira Sorvino I think is really good as his kind of neglected girlfriend. Um, It has a great soundtrack. It makes great use of of the the original power ballad Beth by Kit. I mean, like, I think everything about it, it's just, it feels so, so authentic and knowing and um is is kind of great oh my god i'm just looking at the cast list now and i forgot what a dream team yeah i mean I like mean, oh, top holy down shit. yeah holy yeah. shit no and michael rapaport lauren holly noah emmerich in one of his like first big role i mean like uma thurman 
yeah, yeah. like this is like Pruitt Taylor Vince like and Bobby yeah. I mean this is like a phenomenal cast yeah Max Perlich who I love yeah who's great talk about your indie film actor yeah. oh my god yeah I mean he's just not in enough stuff really yeah Rosie O'Donnell gets a really great scene in the local market that got a lot of play at the time I mean ugh, it's just this is what this is what small movies were to me growing up 25 years I can't this took place in New England if I remember correctly and I like yeah I don't remember exactly where it's definitely New England yeah I think it might have been New Hampshire there was a lot of snow yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's a winter it's a winter movie. There's a lot of snow. Yeah, yeah it's sort of like that perfect February movie because it's like it opens like there's they're always plowing. You know, like yeah, they're they it's are. like New England. Totally the characters is a snowplow. Yeah, it's like total small town New England where like everybody has a plow on their pickup truck. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and this is sort of the thing. <laughs> yeah, this is such a such a good movie. Is it streaming anywhere? I'll check. I want to say no. Probably not. Uh, yeah. Let me let me do a quick uh, iPad search. Uh, but yeah, anyone who's uh, reminiscing for days of yore, um, if you can find beautiful girls, give it a try. Yeah, it's really wonderful, and it is apparently set in Knights Ridge, Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts. Okay. It's not New Hampshire. It's Mass. So they're all Mass holes, which makes sense. Let me see. It's not on Amazon. Uh, it's probably not streaming anywhere. It's going to be a tough one to find. All the, all the movies that I love have just disappeared from the planet. Yeah, you know, I've noticed a lot of these films from the mid-90s um, don't exist on streaming. Like, you have to buy them. So, yeah. you know, because I was looking for You've Got Mail the other a couple weeks Really? Ago. You can't find that anywhere? Not streaming, no. You have to I buy it. Yeah. So so it seems like there's a Practical Magic was another one I wanted to rewatch and that wasn't streaming anywhere. Yeah, so it seems like these movies from the 90s are really kind of hard to find. It's a shame. It's yeah. like Marty McFly disappearing from the photograph. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it uh, HBO Max has um a few on there broken down into and I think they have Desperately Seeking Susan, mm. which I am truly desperate to rewatch before they that disappears too. Oh, Beautiful Girls is available on HBO Max. Ah, of course it is. HBO Max is like Which I also, know. yeah, I'm looking at they say more like this. Chasing Amy, Swingers, Cruel Intentions, Betsy's Wedding. A lot of these are flirting with disaster. That's the one I love too. Mm -hmm. Um it looks like they're all available on HBO Max. So I, I watched a couple weeks us. ago. I rewatched Something Wild on HBO Max. Oh my god, that's ages, another one. Which is great. That's right up there with Married to the Mob, which is not on HBO Max. I really wish it was. Well, uh, you just named two Jonathan Demi uh, specials. So I'm a fan of. I'm a huge fan of both of those. Yes, of but course. I'm you sorry, are. we can't find those. One is with Michelle Pfeiffer. One certainly is. Married to the Mob. Incidentally, um, she's been doing a lot of press around her new movie, French Exit, and the New Yorker interview with her um, asked a little bit about how, you know, she had been considered for Silence of the Lambs, his next movie after Married to the Mob, before it went to Jodie Foster. And, um, you know, the story has remained the same, that it was just too dark for her. She really couldn't bring herself to do it. But when talking about Jonathan Demme, she just talked about how lovely and wonderful and kind he was, which is the only thing I've ever heard about him. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. 
Well, I think that does us in for this week. We are done in. But you guys, if you've watched the Britney doc, if you remember Beautiful Girls, if you've seen Malcolm and Marie, agree, disagree, let us know. Give us some feedback uh, on our Facebook page, Back on the Block Pod. Um, if there's anything else, and there's a lot, I think, coming out all over the streamings, both um, more awards-based movies and also more TV seasons, uh, let us know. And again, the, we'll be, I'll be tuning into the finale of Your Honor with Cranston this weekend, so... I'll, I'll weigh in again. But if you guys have uh, gotten into that one, uh, w we'd love to hear what you have to say about that because, like, we really got into it. And I'm going to leave everybody with this um, bit of news from CNBC. Um, there apparently is uh, the first empirical report findings um, about antisocial traits associated with compliance with containment measures for uh, coronavirus. Basically, if you, wear a if you do not wear a mask or social distance, you are sociopathic. Science says so. Sorry. Wear your damn, damn masks. masks. <laughs> well, thanks. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm going to go to bed. All right. Good night, Karen. And I wish all of you guys a great week. We'll see you next time when we're back on the boulevard. Bye. Bye.